Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration... I just and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Understanding the processes of colonialism from the lace designs that sit on our terrace houses... It's all around Sydney where you see these large, you know, fences of their designs, um, European motifs. You are connecting life, um, contemporary stories with things that are already there and around us. Um, but there are ways on how we can create better representations of um, identity but also reclaiming of space as well. And that's what um, the recent work has done to, rather than seeing it as a fence, as this barrier between land and people, it's now something we can reclaim ourselves. And the last photographic work was um, changing the fence into a shield. Resilience and inclusion within First Nations and queer communities. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. First Nations and queer people all around the world have always faced systemic discrimination and harassment. Racial profiling has been around for a long time, and while it is unlawful to discriminate against a person because of their race, colour, gender and sexuality, it is, of course, still happening today. In Sydney, during the World Pride Festival, the Queer and Black Pride exhibition featured works by Latoya Aroha Rule, Dominic Guerrera, Dennis Golding and Charlotte Allingham. Featured as part of the exhibition was a panel discussion in which these three young First Nations queer artists talked about their perspectives on discrimination, sovereignty, resilience and inclusion. So I want to firstly ask you both, I might start with Dominic, if that's okay. Can you please introduce yourself and describe generally your work practice? Hey everyone, um, my name is Dominic Guerrera, I'm a Ngunnawal and Ghana person um, so that's like Adelaide Plains area, the front of the Adelaide Hills, and the Lower Murray Lakes, or the Lower Murray and Lakes in the Coorong is where Nard and Jetty Mob are from. Um, what do I do? I do so many things. Uh, my background is predominantly in Aboriginal health. I worked in Aboriginal health for 18 years in like the Aboriginal community controlled sector. So I definitely have to acknowledge Redfern for giving birth to that. Um, and I worked in the area of sexual health. Uh, but I'd always kind of been doing art and writing and poetry on the back burner. And then after the pandemic, I kind of just made a switch like many people. And also I'm turning 40 this year, so I was like, now's the time. And um, so I, I'm a poet, a writer. Uh, I've been doing um, a lot of events organizing. Mostly I started off in the the community spaces, so doing like queer nights, poetry reading nights, uh, storytelling events, and then kind of got recognised by the arts <laughs> sector in SA and kind of got invited in to do stuff, which was nice. And now I'm a First Nations producer at Country Arts SA, so working with rural remote artists to bring their work into the metro spaces, but then also to take metro artists out into country audiences. But so yeah, I also do pottery and photography, and uh, we oh might wait. go to Dom. Uh, yeah, Dennis, wait, sorry. But could you just quickly explain the Richard Bell um, Embassy that you? Oh yeah, so I do a lot of uh, public programming, so and curating. I've curated the Context Writers Festival, Our Words, which is one of the very few all Aboriginal um, writers festivals, and it's in Adelaide. And I also. Uh, did the pro public programming for Richard Bell's um, Tent Embassy at, uh, at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And it was really great because Larissa Berendt's film had the world premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival the same week. And so we just had this amazing time with Richard and Larissa just... Well, it was, it was Richard that was, you know, his personality just came through on Ghana Yata and, and I had to really match that energy and that political and social positioning that he has in his work with local Aboriginal people to talk in that tent embassy. And it was really a privilege to be able to do that space. And we had Latoya come through. We had a lot of an auntie who was involved in the High Marshall Island um, protest. 
and Aunty Sandra Saunders, and just kind of recognising local Adelaide voices that sometimes don't get picked up in the national conversation because, don't hate me, but the eastern states, you guys get a lot of space, and sometimes Adelaide and, well, SA, WA and NT particularly, and Tassie as well, can get left out of that a little bit. And so that's one thing I always want to do is, is prioritise the local voices in South Australia because when you're coming over, that's who I want you to hear from. Thank you. Sorry. Don't apologise. It's wonderful. Um, Dennis, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. And have a yarn about your general work practice? Yep. Um, firstly, thank you, Aunt, for doing your acknowledgement. Um, and thanks to the panel, Latoya and Dom. It's a pleasure to share it with you. And Latoya's mum, of course. Yes. <laughs> it's very special that we all share this experience today. Um, and, and thank you again, Latoya, for you know, leading this and, and taking care of us and of our artwork, which is very important. Um, because these are you know, very important stories and stories that are not often... Um, spoken of or, or heard of in, in mainstream and commercial arts community. Um, so my work um, talks about my experience, childhood memory, um, and the history of our families of when we moved from our homelands into Sydney. So my father's Camilleroy country, my mother's country is Biripai at the north coast of New South Wales. Um, back in the 60s, um, when both families, they moved to Redfern, the block, as we know. Um, and this was the opportunity when many families from all around New South Wales and all around the country found out that there was this um, emerging Aboriginal community in the city that offered opportunities for work and education uh, and, and drawn a lot of families into the block and very close just up the road from here. And it's our storytelling of how we called this place home, how we called this place our community and our connection um, to our, our culture and our history. And this was um, the, you know, one of the, the birthing places of Aboriginal civil rights movements, which established the Aboriginal medical service, the legal service and childcare services. And, and for many uh, generations, it offered my family uh, working trades to work on the rails, um, and I remember working, uh, living, growing up in the block uh, across five terrace houses where I just loved painting with my mum and my nan. Um, you know, they were, they were caring um, for me, for my sister. Um, many of us, my cousins, we all grew up around these five houses together. Um, and I was very interested in art at that age. Mum hand, you know, passed me the paintbrush back when I was four years old. Um, and, you know, was off, I've always been interested in, in creating art and, and sharing stories from our experiences living in the block uh, and contemporary history, contemporary stories today that we experience in Sydney. Um, and that's what I do as an artist. I'm always looking at ways I collaborate. Um, I not only call myself an artist, but also a curator and a collaborator. Um, coming from community, I feel that this is a strong skill that I've developed by just collaborating and working with others that um, we all share you know, similar experiences and stories um, coming from the same com community or from other different communities as well. We have a shared experience that can be best shared collectively. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> On that, I'm looking up at these beautiful bright capes the Future Is Here, it's the name of the project, with Alexandria Park Community School. Could you explain the collaborative approach you took to the work and a little bit about the young people? Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess I'll talk about the first set of um, superhero capes and you might wonder where that all came from and, and when, it, when it first started. So I studied at UNSW Art and Design, um, graduated in 2019, um, I majored in painting, um, a course called Expanded Painting, and in second year we were given a, um, an assessment to, um, I think the question was, how do you establish new narratives in urban space? Um, 
as, a, as an art student, I was still exploring identity and culture through symbolism. Um, it's something I was very interested about and closely re- resonating with some of the images that you see around the, the building here of what they do to mark place and identity of culture. Um, so how could I work with symbols um, to create stories about my own experiences and memories? And I then started to think about my own um, experience living in the block Um, When I was about six years old, mum bought me uh, the Batman superhero costume, um, which made me feel so strong, so powerful. And on my birthday, I was just, um, you know, so proud to wear a superhero cape. And that's an interesting thing when you as a kid put something on, it makes you feel powerful. And you might have that experience today when you put something on or um, you're wearing something, it makes you feel a sense of... um, pride and strength that same uh, feeling that you do, you feel as a, as a child I, I really wanted to share the concept of the superhero capes with the students from this school um, and particularly this school too Alexandra Park community because um, I grew up you know with their parents these were kids whose parents I grew up with down the block um, so it was very um, beautiful to even find that connection with these young people is that I can see these families and I can see my own childhood memories coming through when I work with them and the goal for the project was that how can you create your own symbols using this super superhero cape and how um, might that change the way that you see your culture and identity um, the collaboration was a very intensive two-day workshop. Uh, we went from grades year kindergarten to year 12. Um, over about 100 superhero capes were made um, and we first exhibited them at Blacktown Arts, an exhibition called Power, and at Carriage Works um, back in 2021. Um, this, yeah, was, was so monumental to the storytelling of our youth today, of how they actually express parts of their culture and identity and it's not um, it's a bit of a challenge because they're not painting on a canvas something um, that they might do you know in the art class it's on a superhero cape so then you know the while they were experimenting with these symbols and images they're also thinking about why they're actually painting onto a superhero cape and all the decisions they had to make by choosing the, the right color or the the image that often talks about, um, you know, traditions or, um, you know, sites um, that are very much significant to Aboriginal families. But also memory, um, you know, some of the the kids, I remember one of the memories in this blue cape, there's a whale, um, which is kind of talking about when they went to Botany Bay and seen the whale jumping out. So there's memory uh, attached to these capes as well of not just creating symbols that talk about or, you know, historic markings on country, but also contemporary images that talk about themselves. And I thought that was really empowering to, to be part of that whole collaboration. Dominic, I want to turn to you now. Fellow Dominic, could you please explain a little bit about outrage the concept that we chose, um, and also a bit about the people in our photo series. Yeah. Um, I think, it, well, it came out of a conversation that you and I had about representation of queer mob in SA, but also kind of about feeling beautiful and feeling good about yourself. But also this was during the time of COVID, so it was the elephant in the conversation and we were talking about how mob, queer mob, well, mob generally were being treated and health services were not um, get, delivering the same standards to Aboriginal people or the government response to Aboriginal communities was lacking and how we were thinking and feeling during that time. But in SA, we were quite lucky. We kind of, you know, did a lockdown and then we were able to kind of contain the state unlike what was happening in Melbourne, um, they were having huge lockdowns. And so we, we came out of COVID kind of a bit earlier than everyone else. And in that was kind of, we talked about the feeling of that release, that freedom, the celebration of being able to come out. And I don't know if mob over here call it, but we, we call that going out and having a rage. 
So, <laughs> so that's why we were outraged because of what was happening to Aboriginal communities. But we wanted to get out, <laughs> and we're queer, so we were coming out, and we wanted to get out for a rage. So there was all these like multiple layers to this title of this work, and it just made us want to go and capture that moment of black queer people leaving their homes, going out to celebrate in whatever way that they they deem to celebrate. And also kind of like the liberation of body because of the policing that was going on, because of the lack of response from the healthcare or government healthcare services because our community-controlled sector was killing it. And just kind of like being able to express yourself and express your, you know, through your body in the way that you adorn beautiful clothing and whatever it is, or just ordinary clothing, you know, whatever made you feel beautiful and coming out and celebrating that. So we have uh, Sasha Smith, who's a Bowen Dick and Miatang woman from the southeast of, uh, of South Australia, so Mount Gambier and Kingston Way. And Sasha's an openly public sex worker. We used to, I used to have a podcast with Sasha around Aboriginal sexual health so I'm not outing them. Um, <laughs> thousands of people listen. But, yeah, so Sasha, um, Sasha's photo shoot was also kind of like returning to work because sex workers were impacted during that time. And they actually found it really hard to get um, onto government payments because they couldn't show that they were loss of income because in SA it's still illegal. Yeah, so Sasha, we kind of took photos for Sasha's work photo portfolio as well as this exhibit. So it's kind of dual, but this, we love this photo so much. Sasha's actually a very shy, timid person, but we just see this like bold, you know, strong young woman. And yeah, I love, I just love this photo so much because it's, it's just the side of Sasha we see, but everyone else doesn't. They think that she's not talking to them because they don't like uh, them. Uh, this is Sasha's uncle, um, Andrew uh, Bert Whistlesmith. Andrew's um, incredible health... Uh, he's actually a CEO of the Aboriginal Health Service down at um, Pangola Manamurna, which is in Mount Gambia. So wouldn't we all love our CEO to dress like this? Um, and again, these were used for Andrew's grinder, but no, <laughs> that was we just kept joking about that on the day. But um, Andrew had also gone through a huge body transformation, um, and also is is a widow, and um, you know it was actually his marriage was before marriage equality. They got married in another country. I can't remember which one, but then the state that his partner passed away. But the state of South Australia actually formally recognised that Andrew and a few other um, same-sex uh, couples were in a married relationship. Um, I think it was symbolic, not so much legal standing, but it was still this retrospective significant moment uh, for Andrew and you know, a validation of that there has been queer marriages that have existed in South Australia. Um, this is Violet Buckskin. Violet's a very special person to me. Her, Kim Wanganin, who sadly passed away, and Raymond Zader, who's an artist, they formed a local um, Aboriginal community group called Mulugumob. And then, which means, I'm going to, sorry, aunt. I'm sorry, aunt. Mulugu means <laughs> cat in West Coast language. So when I say West Coast, I mean West Coast of SA, not WA. So like Sejuna way. And they would call gay men and trans women cats, but Mulugu. So it's actually a slur, but it got reclaimed. Violet was like, well, actually we can't, you know, us black lesbians can't use that word. We don't want to use a word that's associated with cat because of the P word. And so she created Black Lemons, which was the sister group to Mulugu Mob. And Violet has just been a staunch community activist, has their own private consultancy company now called Winder Creations. And in that, they're doing a lot of healing circles in community. So these, you know, like, I'm showing you people that have had really significant roles within the Aboriginal or Nunga community, I should just say. 
Uh, this is Annie Polly Sumner. She was actually my first CEO. I was the CEO of Ab- Nakuran Yunti, which is like the longest and biggest Aboriginal community-controlled health service in Adelaide. And was there for a CEO for like 30 years. Then was the chairperson of the, the peak body. And she's just been, her and her family have just been very instrumental in um, health and also cultural revival for Nadanjadi people. So her brother is Uncle Mugi Sumner, and her son is uh, the artist Damien Shen. And Annie Polly is a photographer herself who captured a lot of, I shouldn't say captured, this is the other thing. We try to get rid of words like captured and photo shoot because they're quite weird words. So she documented a lot of significant stuff in South Australian Aboriginal history. Yeah, and her, she's actually doing a retrospective of her photography soon. So uh, this is sister girl Simone Miller from... Um, so she lives in her community called Cornaba which is about 10 kilometres outside of a small town called Sejuna, which is the last town before you go into WA. And she... uh, I have the highest respect for Simone. We first met working in health, and she is a manager of the mental health team at her local um, AMS, and she actually lived here for a while, and she was a dancer... And then she came back to SA and she was like, I'm going to go live back on community because it's my community just as much as anyone else's. And if people don't like her, then bad luck because she had transitioned kind of away from home. And she gave her mob two years to get her name and pronouns right. And she was very polite with them for two years. And then after that, she was like, right. and has been working in mental health um, over there and is a huge activist um, for sister girls and brother boys and gender diverse mob around the country and has worked really closely with uh, the Tiwi sister, sister girls and yeah, incredible stuff. And yeah, she's, she's just, I don't know, she lives this like peaceful life but yet does so much. And so there's so much to learn from, I think, an Aboriginal person in that who lives on their country. And this is, these photos were taken on Cornaba. So this is in the township. And then as you go up, she took us up to this, and this is a sacred waterhole. Um, no, uh, yeah, waterhole. But there's no water. It's when the rain falls that you drink the rainwater. And so we took photos of her in that spot. And just, it was just such a beautiful day. And when we sent her the photos, she emailed back and she's like, I just feel so beautiful. And that like made me cry because like she is beautiful, you know? And so it was nice that we could get her to feel that way through taking these photos with her. Oh, and they were published in Archer magazine um, before when we first publicly put them out. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. On the program this week, a panel of First Nations queer creatives share their personal stories of adversity, perseverance and success, as well as their connection to culture and community. That's coming up, but first, some music from Mal Power and the late Uncle Archie Roach. We stood the test of time 
time, I blame it on time, but regain it on time, so I claim it on time. Uh, put soul in this image, this is music for the free spirit, inspiration for those who really need it, not those who listen, but those who really feel it. Songs of our time, teachers of our story, let it be written in the maze, the survival of a culture is the reason that we made it. Yeah. was Mal Power featuring the late Uncle Archie Roach with Freedom. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Information about the recent COVID-19 pandemic was hard for many people to understand and many First Nations people struggled with economic difficulties, isolation, confusion and mental health issues. It was a hard time for everyone, but for the First Nations LGBTIQA plus community, their resilience showed and many were able to express themselves through art, dance and music. 
You and I, yeah, we called this project Outrage and it was on the backdrop of Black Lives Matter. You and I also organised the one of many, but one of the first Black Lives Matter rallies after the hashtag in 2014 from America in, on Ghana Yarta in 2016, where we brought together a whole bunch of Aboriginal families from across Australia who had had similar experiences. Um, and I do acknowledge, I should have done it at the start, but I'm doing it now. My mum is sitting up here, Caroline Anderson. Um, in 2016, my brother Wayne Fella Morrison died in custody in Adelaide in Yatla Prison. He was spit-hooded, restrained by up to 14 corrections officers, put in the back of a prison transport van where he didn't wake up. So for 2016 and Black Lives Matter, for us as a family, it was such a big moment. So jumping to 2020 when George Floyd happened, when George Floyd was murdered, um, and also people like Le Damon Dwayne Hall, say her name, um, a transgender black woman who was spit-hooded by Dallas police. That was all happening off the backdrop for us, really, of Aboriginal deaths in custody here in Australia. Um, the murder of people like Veronica Baxter, a transgender Aboriginal woman. I guess for us, as queer black fellas, we don't get to always have these yarns about the intersections of being queer and being Aboriginal and police violence and prison violence and how we move about the world as people from two minority groups, really, or multiple minority groups within minority groups, let's be real. And those experiences of policing of our bodies as queer people and also of, as black people, it's a really large question, but can we kind of think, and I might start with you, Dennis, about the expectations, experiences, um, thoughts during Black Lives Matter and during particularly 2020 upon you as a black queer person? I guess I started to think firstly of other incidents that happened before. Um, you know, TJ Hickey's story was very hurt, hurtful for the whole community of Redfern, um, particularly my aunties as well, for that um, time. Um, during that, you know, the, what was happening during the pandemic, it was so hurtful to, to feel that and see that that's also a shared experience coming from all around the world. Um, particularly even from my community. And it just reminded me as well of, of my own experience living in Redfern, and, and that's for every Aboriginal kid who's lived in the city, and in, particularly in the block, um, has felt monitored or surveillanced constantly every day. And in fact, that's where these stories of the superhero cape stems from, is that this young little black kid felt so you know, monitored um, and needed to hide away from something to feel a sense of relief or power and control. And um, I often talk about that when I, when I speak of the capes, is that um, it was my safety to get away, to dress up at, as that little Batman character running around and even playing um, silently with the, the police, you know, from around the laneways. I remember um, in my own imagination as a young kid, playing hide-and-seek, um, even being questioned from the police as you're walking down the street. That's just something that still stays with you. Um, and you wonder how that impacts on you, on your health, um, you know, your well-being, emotional well-being. It's, it's something that really impacts us and, and is a real experience and, and it affects us in many ways. Thank you for sharing those experiences. Dominique, what was it like during 2020 for you? on Ghana Yota, um, and the Black Lives Matter pandemic? Um, it, was, it was interesting because I was still working in health at the time and I was pushing a lot of energy into responding to the pandemic from a black point of view because they were trying to make us... I'll be very honest, where I worked at the time, the health council, it wasn't responding the way it needed to be because we were kind of in a bit of disarray with our leadership at the time. And so the stability of, of mob or community was kind of really fragmented in the health sector. And it made me feel very unstable. So when the Black, Death and, like, the Black Lives Matter stuff was happening, and we, were, we actually hosted a very big successful um, protest in that, 
and in the confines of it being a pandemic. But the response from community was great, but the response from black organisations really wasn't. And so I was seeing protesters being left out, organising by themselves without much response, with support. And it kind of made... I was a bit disillusioned, and that's partly why I left health, because I kind of felt like we had moved from being a black organisation that should be supporting community to one that was just kind of following what government wanted to keep up with the funding. And it didn't take those opportunities to centre itself in community and be that, you know, like, hand out... And I was really jealous because I could see, like, Fitzroy Health were doing some really great stuff. And I know over here people were... The health service was were doing stuff. And I was like, why aren't we just giving out masks at the protest? Why aren't we just giving hand sanitizer or just basic stuff or giving the organisers a room to come into that space and organise and do banner painting or something like that. Just basic stuff that when you're organising a protest like that, that little support can go a really long way. So I, I felt really disillusioned. I felt a little unsafe in those spaces because I was like, you're not centering what the community is needing. And then on top of it, the normal stuff that we have to go through on a day-to-day basis with the police. And just before the pandemic, I think it was a few months, the South Australian government was promoting, had given military-style guns to the South Australian police and they were promoting the, you know, the huge guns. And they were now patrolling, you know, as part of their anti-terrorism. And so my, you know, you fear level, the fear levels of police goes up because now they have military-grade weapons that they're using. And, yeah, just if... if I, I don't know, I felt very disillusioned and I don't feel like there's been much recovery in Adelaide from that um, time... And it was the key opportunity to take that moment and organise and rally a, like a community response to it, and we failed. And, but community didn't. The community org, some of them did. Where the success was, was at the local AMSs, so in the country towns. They felt completely isolated, and so what they did was they just turned inwards and they pulled on their own strengths and they got through it themselves. And that's what will rein, re, reinvigorate my, my belief in community orgs um, and seeing that happen. But we need to rebuild those networks. I definitely think that um, not many people realise, yeah, the impact that Aboriginal community medical services, health services have in our lives during times of racial violence. Uh, racial violence and it is also obviously the Aboriginal legal services who catch us many times and legal aid and other supports um, during the racial pandemic, racial violence pandemics but because we're not responding, well we respond as community health mob, I'm a social worker (laughs) undergrad, as community health mob with a community minded health response to a lot of racial justice issues, people don't really frame it that way. Um, the other day, literally last week, I was responding to a cousin who'd been locked up um, who was complaining uh, in Adelaide during lockup in a prison there in a remand centre of neck, back and head injuries and he wasn't able to have a doctor present and instead of his family calling the Aboriginal rights legal movement, Aboriginal legal rights movement, they called me and my first response was actually to call an ambulance to the prison because I know that those inside weren't responding as health workers, right? As mob would respond, they were responding, well, how do we detain, mitigate, move this young person to his own cell uh, and then deal with him then? So I think it's um, really fitting that you are and that we are today articulating the racial violence pandemic uh, with a health perspective and a mental health perspective, social-emotional well-being perspective, Um, which other people don't always do. They think it's just about policing. They think it's just about violence. And I think that's the easy way to see it. 
Um, but on policing, it irks me because, you know, even here in Sydney, in Oxford Street and the Pride Parade happening, um, there are four different types of police present in that parade. There are the military, there are the navy, they are the local police, there are the federal police, then there are the security and the politician, they are the police ministers. They are all walking in those parades with their floats, with their police floats. It's unfair for me as a non-binary person, but also who goes as a woman, I guess, or is read that way, to have to stand on the front line and stand up for women's rights when the next day, you know, a policewoman could be standing in my brother's inquest giving evidence against him or standing in an uh, inquest of a trans Aboriginal woman giving evidence against her. Um, and that, that solidarity that we expect to translate across borders doesn't always happen for us as queer mob, particularly queer Aboriginal people. Um, so I guess for everybody here as well, maybe just more intimately, what do we need from allyship? What do we need from uh, Pride 2023? What are we looking for out of the next two weeks uh, for ourselves and our own communities, particularly here on Gadigal Noora, on Gadigal land? Um, because I think that we can create change out of today's talk even. I think it's, um, you know, as you're talking about how there's so many being part of the parade is a, a thing that we see the police um, taking part in to you know, for this parade and for this one event, um, it makes you kind of question and, and try to think about what are some of the other things that have been outside of that? Is that perform performance? Is that just to be walking down for this one occasion and then realising some of the other impacts um, that we've been experiencing these last couple of years especially? And, you know, we've all felt that sense of being fenced in... Um, and being um, you know, locked down, that we've always had to come out of something um, to really you know, gain our strength again and something that can be more powerful for us to live as people. Um, I think I remember even back in you know, 2020, um, developing work um, and concepts was always about how to create empowering representations of Aboriginal contemporary experience and life you know the capes speak to that um it's quite obvious and what it does of even seeing the aboriginal figure draped in a superhero cape you can see that that's a powerful representation of that body and of that experience and memory um i love my work as an artist because i get to contextualize all these experiences um of what we all go through uh, and looking at objects or looking at um things that we that a part of our everyday life and our experiences and you know it's always connecting to this super heroic uh, power or strength and you know the last recent works that I've done is understanding the processes of colonialism from the lace designs that sit on our terrace houses um, it's all around Sydney where you see these large you know fences of their designs um, European motifs it's been really interesting these last couple of years developing work for that because you are connecting life, um, contemporary stories with things that are already there and around us. Um, but there are ways on how we can create better representations of um, identity but also reclaiming of space as well. And that's what um, the recent work has done to, rather than seeing it as a fence, as this barrier between land and people, it's now something we can reclaim ourselves. And the last photographic work was um, changing the fence into a shield. Yeah. That was an incredible narrative to sum up, I think, today's talk. So I want to um, maybe actually throw to you, Dom, if you'd like to answer that, kind of what are your needs during this time, but also to maybe yarn about the work on the walls um, that we've done over the weekend, if you'd like. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, I was going to say at the beginning, uh, we came in and painted these uh, diamond uh, diamonds on the wall. Um, I just want to acknowledge they're from my culture, uh, Ghana and Naranjeri. We use them as decorations on our weapons. Um, so I also know that these symbols are used in other nations and they may have different meanings to them. 
Um, so that's, I just want to say that's where they're coming from. And we lifted them from my work and put them in this room to help indigenize this space. So it's not a cultural... Um, we're not using them in a cultural way, but we've lifted them from cultural objects to indigenize, help indigenize the space along with the artwork. And I think that that's important to do those things in galleries and in, ga in exhibiting spaces because they are quite white. <laughs> they have a history of being white and they have a history of being um, prioritizing certain works over others. And so coming into our spaces, we have to also do, I feel like, additional things than just put our artwork in that space to help indigenize it. It's the same way as I like putting language into academic papers. You know, like you're helping to indigenize the academic writing process. Yeah, I guess you've kind of answered that about indigenizing this space. And I think for yeah. our listeners, the space that we are sitting in is black walled. And that's why I chose this space as well. Um, because it is a black, queer black space. And the title of this exhibition is Queer Black Pride. And I know that every single element, as you've just said, um, in multiple... Um, well, I was yarning with a few here today. The diamonds, essentially, that are on the walls, on the black walls here, are used in multiple different Aboriginal nation groups for different reasons. But one of those reasons is as a shield... Um, as well and I know that Dennis you spoke about the capes being a shield and you know it's being turned into a shield sorry um, as people but also the other work the lattice work you're talking about um, and that real protective element of this exhibition and as we're talking about the racial violence pandemic we're talking about COVID pandemics that's something I've needed out of pride to be protected and I feel like here in this space I feel really protected um, not only because you are all here and, you know, I'm in such a lovely place with my colleagues who are all awesome, um, but just also to create black spaces where we can thrive, where we can have a future. Dennis, you know, the future is here literally and figuratively because we're creating it, but we're protecting it um, and we're doing things to protect each other in our work. So I guess on that, um, I do want to open it up. We have five minutes. If there are any questions but also just to acknowledge that, yeah, this is a really protective space for me and that's what I've needed out of Pride and I feel like that's the message coming out of this talk today, to protect black lives, to stand up for black lives. Cops out of Pride, they don't make me feel safe. And, and corporations out of Pride too because they are also just as much evil... To protect Aboriginal land, right? Exactly. But not protectionism, black protection, black spaces, black land, black people. Exactly. Um, from ourselves, and we can do that ourselves. And we're creating art that lives and breathes and protects the future because it protects us. You've just heard from Latoya Aroharul, Dominic Guerrera and Dennis Golding. They were speaking during the recent Queer and Black Pride exhibition, celebrating the sovereignty, visibility and resilience of queer First Nations people. We'll leave you this week with some music from singer and songwriter Emily Waramara. She was nominated for Best Blues and Roots Album at the ARIA Awards in 2018. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
Kisses they glitter like diamonds Hearts in the beautiful sun Can you hear the whispering in the trees? Oh yes, we are the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. And you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. <laughs>